call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And then they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Mori at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram, Abram set out and continued to Ors and Agave. reading is from Matthew 8 verses 5 to 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralysed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve you to come to, under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of, kingdom, of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Great to see you. If you're wondering what why I've got a black eye, <laughs> I, um, I just got. Thank you, pardon. I didn't forget Mother's Day. No, that's <laughs> what I, mean. um, I um, got. Uh, I I played rugby yesterday. That's enough information, isn't it? Yeah, I play rugby. I've played rugby every um, season for eight or nine years, and there's only the second black eye, so that's pretty good, isn't it? Um, if you're joining us for the first time in a few weeks this week, or if you're our guest today, we're actually looking at a series 
working through the Bible in 10 parts. Um, the Bible's in more than 10 parts, but 10 is a nice easy number to break it down into. Um, and we've been tracing the story and um, from Genesis right through, we'll go right through to Revelation and we're up to the third week. So that little video that we watched before helped us um, to fill it in. But really, what we're understanding is the, the fact or the way in which the Bible is the true story of God and ultimately of the world and of us. The true story about God, the world and us. So let's pray that God would help that to make sense to us as we, as we consider his word today. Let's pray. Loving Father, we give you thank, thanks for the um, opportunity to meet. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. And Lord, we give you thanks that in what we're about to read today, Lord, that we have certain hope that we can build our life on. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the um, understanding in our hearts and the courage in our lives to actually um, continue to take those steps of building a life that is built on, on the hope that you have set in place, set into the mess of this world for us. And Lord, I just pray that I'd explain it clearly as we look at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So really, we've got to think, as we look at the big world around us, the big wide world, and we uh, consider the news that comes through to us on our news feeds or on the telly or wherever we hear it or just in our conversations, as you look at our world, your life in this world, would you actually say that there is any hope? It's pretty easy to doubt that, isn't it? And yet, we're going to see in these promises that we've read that were made to Abraham... These promises actually announce loud and clear the hope that God has brought into this world. And, and it's hope that is for each of us and for our world around us. And it's hope that even though we're in the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible, that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because of Jesus, there's hope for our world. Because of Jesus, there's hope for you. We've got to think, do we actually feel that? Do we feel that hope? Now, I've got a picture up there. I don't know whether that's a good wave or not. Does it look surfable, bro? Yep. Well, I'm terrible in the surf. Um, on a board or just trying to swim to get out the back past the breakers. I remember being at the back beach at Woody Head on one of a camp when I was a teenager. I don't know what camp it was, but I was being shown there how to body surf. Um, and I don't know whether that's harder than actual surfing or not because I'm hopeless in the surf. But I was just in the waist-deep water and I was trying to swim with the wave and I got dumped. I remember this quite vividly, being slammed into the sand at the bottom of the wave. And then, if, if, if this has happened to you, you kind of know what happens next. You finally get your composure. You get um, over the disorientation of, of being dumped around and you go to stand up and what's there? Another wave, and you stand straight up into a wall of water or underneath the next wave that's come through. Now, that kind of situation is pretty scary. Um, but I want you to actually not treat that as a situation that, you know, is a bit of a hopeless situation, but as a metaphor. Think of that as a metaphor for how life is turning out, for the consequences of your choices or the way that we see the world around us. Thinking about 
that as a bit of a metaphor for what it's like to be drowning in sin, in shame and guilt that comes from sin. Last week, um, Paul spoke to us about the fall, about when the world uh, and, the, and the people that God had made turned their back on God. Genesis 3, where we see the people that God created break apart as they came to feel the effects of their choice to doubt and reject God as God. And the effects of the fall, they're still with us. And yet today we will see that even in the midst of all the mess, there really is hope. There's real hope for you and me. Hope that in some way God will reach into that wave and pull us out. There's hope for the hearts of people in all kinds of situations. This hope that Jesus brings, well, it affects every part of our lives and it speaks hope into every circumstance. See, maybe a circumstance might be the, just the mess that we've made in our own life, the mess that we've made out of a situation. Maybe it's been through our own short-sightedness or our stubbornness or our selfishness. Or maybe it's a situation where, we're in, where we've just found ourselves out of our depth, not sure if we can reach out for the help that we need. Or maybe the shame that we're feeling has been put onto us as we've been taken advantage of or misled or had trust broken. So the message that we that we cling to is that there is hope in all of these circumstances and more and hope that ultimately comes through Jesus hope that's centered in Jesus who has taken our shame and guilt died for it and risen to the hope of a new life so how do you feel about that as we gather for church this morning how would our lives individually end together change if we really knew and really believed that there is hope for us and our world hope even when we feel and experience shame a strong hint about how we're going with this is how we feel about our community group our gospel communities i'm sure like me sometimes you feel like just staying away staying at home you've got so much happening you can feel overwhelmed and we have that tendency to withdraw and isolate ourselves. Maybe that's even been the barrier to even involving ourselves in that aspect of church life altogether. How can we change the way we relate to each other so we feel like relating to others in community that strengthens us rather than drains us? How can we change that? Well, we've got to ask the question, how can there be hope in the midst of life's stories that exhibit the painful effects of the fall? Well, we actually got to look back to the fall itself. Even in the event of the fall, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in chapter 3 of Genesis, God actually speaks his message of hope for people and our world. See, when God confronts Satan for the evil act of tempting Eve, and then leading an Adam and an Eve into rebellion against God, God says this to Satan. And in saying this, he actually makes a promise to Eve. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what God's promising is that someone will come from Eve, a special descendant, who will crush Satan completely. Although this special descendant would be wounded in the process. It's God's message of hope that gets carried on through the painful events of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that uh, little video that we watched before kind of fills it in on that. But if you know the story, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, in his jealousy and anger murders his brother. Only four chapters into the Bible, someone gets murdered. Neither of these sons of Eve are the promised deliverer, are they? They're not the ones that will bring uh, an end to this sin. But nevertheless... God shows mercy to Cain, and, and that shows us that God intends to keep his promise to Eve. And then it goes on. Humans descend into such evil over the following generations that they are judged by a great flood, the flood of Noah, and that washes them and their evil away into one great um, reset of the whole creation. And God, in the midst of that, what's he do? He takes a sample of that creation, one family, Noah's family, one of each kind of animal, male and female, and takes a sample of that creation and keeps it going as the world is judged. God could demolish the world, but instead, what's he do? He acts to rebuild it. Now, by the 11th chapter of Genesis, humans get really advanced in their rebellion against God. They build a society it's known as the Tower of Babel, a city with a tower that aims to be an ideal world where really there's no need for God in it. They try to build God completely out of the picture. And what could God do? Could he just smash their tower down, send another flood? Well, he frustrates their efforts and scatters them. And it's almost an act of mercy, isn't it? that he wouldn't let them continue in this rebellion, but that he puts them into different cultures and language groups throughout the earth so that one day he might come to them again with the good news that they will be regathered and they will know God as they God. And so you get to the end of the 11th chapter of Genesis and you've got to ask the question, how is this all going to happen? It really is a spiral downward to this point. How will this promise to Eve become a reality how will this longed for hope ever be met and God announces hope for us and hope for our world in the very next chapter and that's what Genesis chapter 12 in these promises to Abram or we know him as Abraham that's what they are for us God makes three promises they're really quite clear verse 1 God promises that they will have a special land Abraham, I'm going to take you to a new land, God says. In verse 6, it actually says that God shows, shows to Abraham what it will be like, and he says, all of this will be yours. And second of all, in verse 2, God promises people. He promises a nation. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants so numerous that they're going to become a great nation. Forget about Babel. Forget about making a name for yourself. I'm going to make a name for you. I'll make your name great. I'm going to do for you what those tower builders tried to do for themselves. 
So what's he promised? There's people. He's promised that there's land. He's promised that he's going to bring about uh, what he set Adam and Eve doing in the garden. But there's even more than that. For not only will there be a great nation living in a new land, there's a promise to go with that. The nation will live under God's favour. He says there so much. uh, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God promises to answer this problem of human evil and shame by saying that there's hope for our world. He's going to make a special people and bless them. And through them, blessing is actually there to come to all peoples. Three promises. Special people, special land, in a special relationship with God. How would you sum up that hope in one word? Well, think back. The word that God spoke over Adam and Eve before sin came into the picture, before the curse spread, well, that's really it. The word that God now speaks over Abraham is that of blessing, God's blessing. And it has those three key parts, God's people in God's place under God's rule and his blessing. This is the blessing that Adam and Eve were originally meant to be meant to have and to spread through the earth to the scattered peoples who spread out from the tower of babel god will one day come he will come with his promise to eve fulfilled there is hope for all the nations and the peoples of our world notice how the names have changed in genesis 12 but the pattern's the same as in Genesis 1 and 2. Instead of Adam and Eve, it's now Abraham's descendants who are knowing God's blessing. Instead of Garden of Eden, it's this land of Canaan that God has promised. But it's the same big pattern that God will form a people who will make a place where sin isn't there, where evil is, is protected from, and where they can live freely under God's rule and His blessing. So we've got to ask ourselves, can we actually fathom how big these promises are? Because this is where hope is. Whatever form our life's sin and our sorrows and troubles take, there is real hope for us. There's real hope for you. There is real hope for our world. And when this hope is fulfilled, it won't just be getting back to the paradise of the garden before the fall. In this new world promised to Abraham... God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In this new world, the evil and shame that spread out from the fall, from human rebellion against God, it's going to be answered. It's going to be dealt with. And the people promised to Abraham will know God and love God from the heart. They will know God's forgiveness and the restoration that he brings. Well, from Genesis chapter 12 onwards, the hopeful future promised to Abraham is where the true story of God, the world and us is actually heading. Here we go. In the Gospels we meet Jesus and he's the one that ultimately fulfills these promises to Abraham. He's the one who comes and takes that hope and makes it reality. And yet Jesus confronts this same kind of um, rebellion, this same kind of Uh, hiding that goes on in the first part of 
uh, the Bible. These religious characters are known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, they believe that the Word of God, in some sense, they have some understanding of it, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws took these truths about God and shaped God's law into something that was never meant to be. They kind of treat it as a religious fig leaf. They reckon that they could provide their own clothing before God. They could make themselves holy before God and show that they live up to his standard. Now, just as God's clear standard of right and wrong, um, it was given to help them see how much they needed God's forgiveness. But instead, the Pharisees pretended they had it all together, that they were righteous people who obeyed God's law. And so this is what Jesus says about these people. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The fig leaf still seen amongst the religious people today but contrary to what the Old Testament story says, in Abraham's story, while human evil and shame continues, it's God, not people, who are actually shown to be faithful. And so we go back into the story of Abraham, and what we learn is that even though God's made these promises, Abraham isn't actually, doesn't really get it for a while. Abraham's wife, Sarah, first of all, was cynical about God's promise. See, Abraham and Sarah lived until they were quite old. And what they experienced, a really significant form of shame that comes through in, in the culture that they lived in. They grew up without any children. They didn't actually have any heirs. And it was kind of unclear how God would make them into a great nation when there was no children for them uh, to carry on their family line. When God assured them that in their old age that a child would be born to Sarah, she actually laughed at God. Now, later, there's a cool bit where she comes to have her first child and she laughs with joy instead of this cynicism, but she doesn't actually trust God. Likewise, Abraham, he lies and he says that at one point that Sarah is his sister. And he actually does it twice to protect himself, not really trusting God. Well, God steps in and he keeps Abraham and Sarah together. See, even their shameful actions don't frustrate God's promise. And God's the one that's faithful to his promise to Abraham and Sarah. There's another scene where Abraham shares the land with his nephew Lot, who we heard about in his reading. And he chooses lush but evil lands of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he leaves the rough hill country to Abraham. But nevertheless, God says to Abraham, Look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see... I will give to you, to you and your offspring forever. God will keep his promises. Lot's shameful actions can't stop God's plan coming true. So can you see it? In his promise to Abraham, God fills out this promise given to Eve, but with greater detail. Now in his weakness, Abraham believes the promise 
But he is certainly not the one that was promised to Eve. Abraham isn't the hero of the story. And as you trace how this promise actually comes all the way through the people of the Old Testament, right through the story of Abraham's people, through the Exodus, through the prophets, through the Psalms, you can follow these promises of Abraham, but the only place that we ever see anyone that can be the one promised to Eve is in Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that God keeps the promises of Genesis chapter 12. Early in Matthew's gospel, in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus is up the mountainside talking to the people in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching the Jewish crowd what the true God-shaped, hope-filled life actually looks like. And what does he speak there? He speaks that blessing will come, blessing will come, because he's the one that's going to bring it. And after that, Jesus comes down the mountainside and he meets a descendant of Abraham, covered with this incurable leprosy. His whole life is lived in great shame and isolation, sent outside of the town. And really... His shame is a picture of our universal human shame, our isolation that comes from our sinfulness. For we humans, we actually go after fig leaves all the time to cover our shame. We do this as we put barriers between ourselves and others. We do this because we believed our shame can, can be fixed. Sorry, it actually can't be fixed, but just hidden and kind of managed, put aside. But in his shame, this leper, he has hope. He knows where to look. And so we read that he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we're told that Jesus reaches out his hand, touches the man and says, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. See, Jesus removes his shame. He removes his isolation. This is the picture of hope fulfilled, of what it will take to remove our shame, of what will happen at the cross, where our shame before God and our isolation from God, they end and we return home to God. Heather read that second reading from Uh, Matthew for us and in there we were reading as Jesus walks beyond the base of the mountain into the city of Capernaum on Lake Galilee there's a Roman officer a centurion he comes in well what's his problem and as we heard Heather read his servant is paralyzed he's in helpless suffering at home in bed in many ways he's like the leper isn't he a picture of our helpless state, our shame in our shame and isolation. Well, what's the solution? We expect Jesus will do what he did for the leper. Go to him in his isolation, reach out his hand, touch him and heal him, which he actually offers to do. But then there's the big surprise. This Gentile man, this foreigner, starts speaking like Abraham. He says, I'm unworthy. 
He says, you have God's authority. I trust you. Just speak the word. You don't even need to come to me. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed how much like Abraham this man is. And the irony is that he's much more like Abraham than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In fact, Jesus looks at the crowd and he says this, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And what we've got to realise is what the centurion did. He faced up to what was really going on. That we are all unworthy before God. That God really is God. For the Roman soldier, he would have been taught that Caesar was God. He's not God. In our culture, we're often, you know, we're often put ourselves in the place of God. Think that we can sort things out for ourselves. His career isn't going to be the thing that saves him. This soldier trusts in God's good authority. And he sees that in Jesus. So what was the outcome? Well, his servant was healed. But better than that, Jesus gives him a promise of incredible hope. He says about this Abraham-like man and anyone that will dare to be like him, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The promise to Abraham of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, those promises are for everyone and anyone that dares to have the same faith that this guy does. And that's the whole basis of our Christian faith. That's the only way that we can come to receive Jesus. Honestly aware of our deep need for him. See, the Abraham story, the the story full of hope for the future, is foundational to us understanding what we have in Jesus. The promises to Abraham lead us to Jesus. They lead us to his cross. So we can be like the centurion, like the leper, who are also like Abraham. Jesus' encounter with the leper and the centurion points to the reality that there is hope for you and for me and for our world. And it's hope that's there because Jesus shows us the good God who knows our shame and acts on it at the cross. Jesus makes us the loved sons and daughters. Yes, Father Abraham has many sons. We're one of them when we are trusting the promise that's fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus makes us these sons and daughters who will celebrate with the leper and the centurion, with Abraham and Jesus, with one another in the new creation that he is building. Really, whatever brings us to church this morning or week after week, we've really only got two options when it comes to the shame that we experience and feel. We can stick to just using fig leaves, kind of faking it with each other like the Pharisees did. Or we can face it. But face it with hope. Hope and faith in Jesus, like the centurion and the leper. 
which of these two options are we going to choose? Is today the day when you actually kind of have to fess up and realise that the way you go about following Jesus, it's not the way that he asks us to. Hiding, fearful that somehow we can't come to God. Maybe that's what is the barrier that you find to actually boldly sharing Jesus with other people. Thinking, well, their life just looks like such a mess. How on earth could I ever expect that to change so that they could become a Christian? And at that point, well, we've just got it backwards, don't we? See, as you think about it, one really great outcome of God's good news is that God doesn't leave us to face shame alone. A lot of the ideas that are behind um, the way that we're preaching through the big story of the Bible come from this Christian psychologist whose name's Kurt Thompson. He's got a book. I don't know whether Paul mentioned it in his talk last week, but it's definitely in the study notes, and um, I haven't read it, but it might be helpful if you really want to get in deep with, with thinking about this. But this is a little quote from him out of that book. He says, isolation is one of shame's primary methods. We're wrong to think that the solution is ever to isolate ourselves. We even see that right back in Adam and Eve. When they do sin against God, it's what they do. They They hide from each other. They hide from God. And we even see the way that God graciously treats them right in that moment. He clothes them. And he sends them out to continue living, that this promise might be fulfilled. Sometimes we do need to protect ourselves from those whose evil acts are a repeat of that original evil. And and we need to be conscious of that. We need to stay safe. But totally isolating ourselves is both the tendency that we'll have and it's always the wrong solution. Another quote from this guy says, Our struggle against shame is begun not by ourselves, but in the company of trustworthy friends, family members, and spiritual mentors. It comes in that community. That's why we try to foster these communities at our church. So here's one thing that we can do. Can we be the trustworthy friend, family member, or spiritual mentor? being that safe person. When others have that shame story to tell, when they have that circumstance that they're just out of their depth in, can we be safe people for them to come to? That means being confidential, non-judgmental, showing genuine care. Because we know that's who Jesus is. We We see it in how he treated people. Be that safe, confidential person another person can share life with. And of course for ourselves, find that kind of person that you can safely share your life with. Break that isolation. Be committed to a community group. Talk to me at the end of the service about which one you're going to join. Even when meeting in community actually seems ordinary, 
By gathering, we actually do something amazing, don't we? We break our isolation. Isolation that help, keeps people captive. And so when you notice that someone is isolated, help them. Help them. Reach out to them. Encourage them to join in a group. Give them a lift. Or just make that phone call to make that connection with them. As we gather on Sundays, break down the barriers by actually being here each Sunday. Sit with and talk to the person who seems to isolate themselves. Be that trustworthy listener. This is playing our part in what God is doing in our world through Jesus. Because in Jesus, the promises of Abraham have been fulfilled. Through Jesus, God is gathering people from all the nations. And when you break down barriers here at church, you're actually playing a part in that. As we together speak the hope-filled, shame-removing good news of Jesus to one another, as we point each other to Jesus, help others to do the same. So which of the two examples do we follow? When it comes to dealing with our shame, do we cover it with fig leaves or do we face our shame, our sin with the hope that comes through faith in Jesus and break that shame, the isolation of that shame as we gather in this community? Let's pray. Loving Father, we um, pray that you would uh, take all those messages